Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food and Health Talks. You know, on this episode, we'll be discussing food innovation and food safety with our special guest, who is a um, pathogenic microbiologist. Our research work spanned over 30 years in food uh, science. She's worked with organizations such as NASA, USDA, and with different private organizations as well. Dr. Annabelle Morales-Drews is the President and Chief Science Officer at Fusion Firms. Annabelle, it's so great to have you here today. Really, really excited for the conversation we're going to have. Thank you so much, Julia. I'm just as excited as you are. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's really great. So let's get started. Let's talk a little bit about your journey uh, to the point where you are today. You've really accomplished a lot in your field, in, in um, your journey so far. So tell us a little bit about you. Yes, uh, thank you. So um, I'm going to tell you sort of the story of the start, right? So imagine, you know, young Annabelle in seventh grade taking her first biology class. So to me, it was something that just caught, caught my imagination. The very first time I was able to look through a microscope, I discovered a world that I had never seen before. I just thought, oh my goodness, I can now see things that I couldn't see with my naked eye. So I completely fell in love with the idea that there was this world you couldn't even see with your naked eye and that there was this fun instrument, a microscope that allowed you to discover that world. So that was my first you know, falling in love with this particular field, but that whole biology class in seventh grade, all the various different things that we did and, and to look at, you know, how to study life, how it works, and that completely fascinated me. So I just followed my curiosity. So that was seventh grade, and what followed were, were years of um, putting together experiments in my parents' kitchen and turning the their cabinets into germination chambers and germinating seeds and seeing how you know different seeds grew um, that led to experiments that I did with the uh, collaboration at the University of uh, Puerto Rico with a professor and I was still in seventh eighth ninth grade in high school and I competed at various different levels at um, with this science fair project that I worked for years and so that led to college and um, I wanted to do research I, it was clear to me that I wanted to become a researcher, not a medical doctor. It was much more interesting for me to find solutions uh, as to how and understand how microorganisms cause disease rather than treating the diseases that they had already 
already caused. I was very much interested in infectious diseases and organisms that cause disease, and those are pathogens. So um, I did um, my undergraduate at the University of South Florida, and it was incredibly lucky because I was able to do an internship at NASA, the Space Flight and Life Sciences Training Program, and that's really what opened up a path to follow my career in what was then space biology. Um, and that led to a series of internships at NASA at the Kennedy Space Center uh, that led to my work for my master's in uh, PhD completely funded by NASA because as we're gonna talk in a few minutes, um, a lot of the research that I did was looking at the survival of these pathogens on food surfaces. That's interesting, really interesting. So we'll just, take up from there and just talk more about your work, your research work. You did some remarkable work um, while you were at NASA and then at USDA. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yes, I'd love to, I'd love to. So my work with NASA, the reason why it was so unique and so innovative is because no one had done it before. No one had looked at the survival of human pathogens for the simple reason that it's very dangerous to work with, you know, human pathogens and to, you know, infect them in foods and to look at the survival of them in food. So that was one way of getting my own lab at NASA because no one, no one wanted to be anywhere near me, right? <laughs> they looked at me as someone who was working with very dangerous uh, organisms. So what I did was I narrowed it down to five organisms that had been isolated or had been a problem in previous NASA missions. So out of those five microorganisms, we looked at the question as to what are some of the factors that influence the survival of these microorganisms in long duration space missions? Um, the first one that we looked at was the density of the invader. How many microorganisms would have to be, pathogens would have to be introduced into the system before they could be a problem. The second one was the time of introduction. So if you look at plants and how plants grow, they have a whole life cycle. So if they're invaded when they're very young versus medium growth versus fully grown plants, there's a very different dynamic in that well-established microbial community associated with the roots. And by the way, the focus of my research was in the rhizosphere of hydroponically grown wheat. Uh, wheat was one of the major crops that NASA was evaluating for long duration space missions, hydroponically, because obviously we couldn't take um, tons of soil, which are very, very heavy in long duration missions. So all the work that I did was with hydroponics. And then, um, we looked at the survival of these organisms. So lo and behold, what we found was that not too many of them could survive if they were in the presence of a diverse microbial community. So the focus of my PhD work was then in Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which was the one pathogen that had the most ability to survive. And if you remember the movie Apollo 13, that urinary tract infection uh, in the Apollo mission was one of the worst to date at that time you know, human infections in space, which is very, very dangerous. Um, so I worked with that one particular isolate and looked at um, how, we do, how can we prevent the growth of this microorganism? And what we found was that a diverse microbial community, a stable microbial community is less invasible to potential um, pathogens. So with that idea and with those findings, that got the attention of the Department of Agriculture. And they asked the same question. They came to me and they're like, well, Annabelle, how about we look at the same 
a type of application and dynamic of um, competitive exclusion of pathogens, but for foods that are here on earth, on a salad bar, at the supermarket. So even though it seems unusual that I would have worked with two completely different government agencies, the questions were very different, you know, survival of pathogens in a lunar base or a Mars colony versus the survival of those pathogens on the foods that you find here on earth, different questions, but yet very similar approach in terms of using competitive exclusion to exclude pathogens. So those are the highlights in terms of the focus of the research of the work that I did with those two government agencies. And, and they're very, very interesting um, uh, concepts as well, because if you think about it, if we should care about what happens in space and safety, food safety in space, the work is very relevant to um, people on Earth as well, in terms of food safety here as well. And you're even thinking about a larger population. So I really do know, I'm not surprised USDA approached you at all because they should. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and also one thing I wanted to add in terms of why, why it was so relevant and, and why the research was so in, important is because if you think about human presence beyond Earth, it's really going to deter be determined by microorganisms. It's not our ability to build ships to get us as far as Mars. It's not going to be on the ability of astronauts, humans, to fly those ships and come back. But if the microorganisms you know, infect the plants and the astronauts have nothing to eat, they die, mission is over. If the astronauts become sick, they have no, uh, they won't have the ability to fly themselves back. So that becomes a problem. So again, bottom line, microorganisms will determine our ability to explore our you know, universe beyond Earth. Right, right. And, and the truth is, those questions are still very, very relevant today. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, for uh, space missions, but even here with all the food innovations we're seeing around us, it's so crucial for us to ask some very, very important questions, thinking about the consumers and their safety. And for instance, uh, this is a question that should be down down the line, but it's so appropriate at this point that I think sure. I'll just insert it here. Um, now we think about uh, food innovation, we think about cultured meat, we think about uh, mushroom protein, we think there's just so much going on in the food space, which is exciting. But yeah. the, the, the big question here is, are we asking enough questions? Think about the findings you had while you were at NASA or the findings you had while you were working with the USDA. What if they did not ask those questions? We would never know. We'll never know. And we'll just kind of like live in... And we just do things the way we want to do it and live in ignorance. So it's very crucial for us to look at different scenarios and come up with questions and find out what's really going on. How can we make this uh, new innovative product safe for consumers? How can we ensure that um, yes. consumers consumers are safe, not just for the short term, long term as well. So yeah, I really, really, um, I really, really think those questions are important. And I want to get your thoughts on food innovation space as a yep. whole. And Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So when I think, and I've done quite a bit of work in research and development and food innovation, um, and also food preservation and food processing. So looking at every single step from ingredients, from how those ingredients are grown, how those ingredients are processed, the environment that it's used to manufacture and process those foods, the packaging, and even all the way to the transportation, and what are some of the time temperature parameters that are used that could potentially be conducive for optimal conditions for spoilage or pathogen 
to grow within that food. So I have a very good understanding from the very beginning to the end, and even how consumers, you know, use these foods, how they store it in their refrigerators, how they cook them or not cook them. Uh, did they cook them enough? So it is important as we move forward with this um, new era of food innovation with such aggressive, you know, research and development that we pause and we carefully take into consideration the survival of potential, you know, pathogens and spoilage microorganisms as part of these foods. So mm -hmm. certainly I see that as, as a very, very relevant um, topic. And that is a lot of the work that I've done with uh, you know, food manufacturers and in, in companies that are also in the food service space in the past few years, looking at those. So they typically bring me in for that particular expertise to try to identify what are my risks and, and to make decisions that are risk-based as opposed to what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, just sort of, you know, thinking, well, I'm thinking this is probably gonna work or I'm, I'm taking all the steps necessary to ensure both the safety and the quality of this particular food. Um, so those are some of my thoughts in terms of the importance of um, taking into consideration the microbial populations, microbial communities and ways of processing and preserving food to reduce the risks of foodborne illness. Thank you so much. And before we wrap up on this um, conversation angle, uh, do you mind sharing a bit of your findings if it's permitted? Is that permitted? Um, uh, yes, ideas? Yeah. Okay, okay. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is the interesting thing. I view things from a very different lens. So when I walk, walk into a food manufacturing facility, I you know, I pretend I am the microorganism. I am the Listeria monocytogenes, the Salmonella. And it's like, if I were Listeria, where would I be hiding? So looking at sanitary design, for example, of equipment in a food manufacturing facility, incredibly important because what you want to try to avoid is creating harborage points or niches where these microorganisms can, you know, um, survive and proliferate, which is even worse. So some of our findings in terms of looking at where are the areas of risks have come all the way from you know walking the fields of leafy greens in Salinas and in Yuma, Arizona, and looking at irrigation water as a potential source of contamination, looking at you know bird droppings, you know, uh, as part of potential contamination, the encroachment of you know um, wildlife, and realizing that some of those. Um, things have been the source of major outbreaks or even some of the you know spores blown from an adjacent field that has cattle uh, so looking at some of those issues and outbreaks those were some of our findings in food manufacturing facilities just identifying niches um, that were there because of poor sanitary design or poor sanitation management and not understanding what it takes to kill and eliminate microorganisms from an environment, from mechanical abrasion, from using the right concentration of chemicals, from having the right frequency of cleaning in order to ensure that your manufacturing environment does not harbor any, um, any pathogens. And then finally, other findings that had to do more with the transportation issues that you know did not meet the time temperature requirements that would inhibit the growth of certain pathogens. So those were also problematic and led to, in some incidents, to foodborne illnesses, unfortunately. Hmm. That's interesting. And um, when you mentioned just now, when you're talking about um, what you've observed in different 
facilities and different places that you've been to, one thing that came to mind is the, the need for us to have some boundaries and I'm sure that there are regulations in place for some of the things like this, but knowing that, knowing clearly that there are these um, boundaries in place for people, especially when it comes to bringing things to the public, it's very, very crucial for us to know that we have um, agencies you could go to, you have consultants you could work with. It's good to know that there are a lot of the services out there and you can you don't have to go through any bureaucracy or anything. You can easily contact them, bring them on board and ensure that whatever we're bringing out to people, whatever the final product is, it's safe both on the short term and on the long term for consumers. That is really, really crucial. I'm so glad that you've spent a lot of time developing yourself, your expertise in this field, and also willing to share your expertise with people, whoever, whoever is interested. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. So we'll move Thank on. You. Oh, you're welcome. So we'll move on. I will talk about um, Fusion Fans. Uh, I, I, like I said uh, earlier on, I, I saw a video clip and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Um, I saw... Variety, that's the first thing that stood out to me. I saw um, some farms, you had specific, um, you had, you were growing Moringa, am I correct? I saw- Yes, you, Moringa had, trees, yes. I said, wow, that's <laughs> impressive, like really impressive. So I saw a lot of things and then I saw a bee culture. I wasn't so sure, but anyway, I'll allow you to tell us about Fusion Firms and what exactly you do. Wow, uh, this is fantastic. One of my favorite things to talk about, obviously. So Fusion <laughs> Farms is um, a hurricane protected indoor vertical aquaponics farm. We Our pilot plant is located in Mayagüez, Puerto Rico. That is our first location. So the video that you saw is footage from our farm and it includes both indoor and outdoor. So clearly the Moringa trees are part of our outdoor farm. And it is the reason why we grow the Moringa trees is they're the major source of food for our fish. So our fish are actually vegan. We actually use the Moringa um, seed and we dry it and we create pellets. And that is part, along with other ingredients, that is part of the food that is fed to the fish. But I'm gonna pause there and, 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 and try to define what those terms are in terms of aquaponics, in case some of the folks in the audience don't know what that is. It is a method of food production that involves both aquaculture and hydroponics. So aquaculture refers to the, you know, the growth of uh, fish in a controlled environment. And hydroponics is something that I know very much and a lot about, and that was the reference to my NASA work, is the culture of plants in water and nutrients, right? So what we have is a closed loop system in which we combine both. So you have the fish and they're through their excretions are producing ammonia and the nitrification process by beneficial bacteria, it, trans it converts ammonia into nitrates. And those are some of the main nutrient sources that are used by the plants to grow. And then the plants in turn, we return clean water to the fish. And it is, as I mentioned, a closed loop system. So when you think about it, all we're doing is um, mimicking what you find naturally occurring in nature by a lake or a creek or a river um, where you have that interaction between these, you know, the fish and the plants. The advantage of having it indoor is that you don't have the all the elements that could potentially prevent the growth of these, you know, plants. In Puerto Rico, as an example, obviously we have lots of hurricanes and tropical storms, and it is very, very difficult 
to grow you know, leafy greens and any types of fruits or vegetables that, are, that have easily damageable surfaces. So that is what, in a nutshell, what uh, Fusion Farms is about, um, and that is what we're doing. But I also wanted to add that in Puerto Rico, they are, like in many uh, uh, islands in the Caribbean, most of the food, and I'm talking about over 90% of the food, especially the fresh produce that is consumed in Puerto Rico, is imported. So that is something that we want to be able to change. We want to be able to give access to fresh fruits and vegetables to the people from Puerto Rico so that we not only have this one building, but we have many other buildings and expansion growth and plan within Puerto Rico to be able to grow huge volumes of these leafy greens so that people have access to these healthy options. That's really interesting. Um, the goal for food sufficiency, it's absolutely a noble one. And also the concept of fish, I, I really didn't think about that before in terms of actually using them in that way. That's really, really imp um, impressive. So when you think about your, the size, the volume of produce you generate, um, what, what, um, what is the capacity of your center out there, fusion for how big or how, how, how big is the production? So um, we have a building that is it's 11,500 square feet. Our research and development pilot plant is about 1,100 square feet. When you look at the vertical rack that is about um, 15 or 12 feet high, it has the capacity to grow 1,120 plants or so. So that is a huge capacity because keep in mind that we're growing vertically. So we have five levels and the distance between the plants can be much less. So in terms of the, you know, it's, it's optimizing the conditions that plants grow. And it, because it is in a closed environment, you can control everything. The, you can control the lights, you can control the temperature, the relative humidity, the CO2, the you know, dissolved oxygen levels, the nutrients, all that can be controlled. So what you're creating are optimal conditions for these plants to just thrive. Compare that to the facility that is under construction right now, the site of our facility is still within the same building, the phase uh, two, which has two racks, one of them has four levels, the other one has five levels. So our plant capacity in that uh, part of the building is going to be about 14, over 14,000 plants. So almost 13 times more volume of what we are producing currently. So that is that is huge. And that is still within a relatively small space, relatively small building. And that's one of the key advantages of control environment agriculture that you have, you know, you're using 95% less water, you're using 99% less land, you're producing year round, uh, so there's not the, this seasonality, you're not limited by that. You are producing high quality food that is nutrient dense because it is grown you know, right there and is delivered to the community around you know, the production area. So we're producing hyper local food. And if we go back to our conversation in terms of miles that food travels and what happens when food travels for those distances, if you have lettuce grown in California, that goes all the way to Florida, that gets into a ship and eventually makes it to Puerto Rico. By the time it gets to Puerto Rico, it is, the nutrients are you know, almost gone, right? And the shelf life is about a day, if lucky, right? If, if, you know, if you can get even that. 
So the possibility of using this model to grow this food that is highly nutritious, fresh, high quality, and it's also safe because we're going to also touch into the food safety. We talked about next question. That. <laughs> yeah, you have eliminated all those risks to a yeah. great extent compared to traditional field farming. Um, you now have the possibility of producing, you know, and giving access to amazing foods to, to people because it is hyper local. But also keep in mind that this is just a model for Puerto Rico. You can replicate this anywhere in the Caribbean, in the United States, and anywhere in the world. So you can take an empty warehouse or an empty building and you can, you know, build this vertical farm indoor and, and set those parameters to be able to control the environment to optimize the growth of the plants. So that is what is exciting about this. We can we can talk about Puerto Rico as a starting point, but we're not and we're we're not limited to just that. And part of our growth and expansion is going to include, you know, other places in the Caribbean, the United States, um, and other parts in the world. That's that's interesting. That's really interesting. And and the the truth about it is, um, it's very important for us to uh, figure out a way around organic and not inorganic. Because one of the conversations we've heard, uh, I think, with another speaker, I've had a couple of speakers actually um, on this on this show that have spoken about the need for people to eat more organic. Uh, uh, food and and I, I was just curious how can we move uh, uh, this needle forward so that this type of produce that's really good and nourishing for people is more affordable because one of the key things people talk about is affordability so for us of course I don't know how um, how much goes into production and um, and overhead for this but one of the key things that's really on my heart is finding out how or how, what do you envision in terms of affordability of your produce to people so that more people can afford to put nourishing um, produce like this on the table every day? So what I absolutely, absolutely agree. That is that is the case. And compare it again to traditional field farming. We are I mean, we have the cap the capability of producing hundreds more times. So in terms of volume, so when you talk about the cost, then that makes it very, very affordable. And when you talk, when you think about the input versus the output, there's very few inputs that were put in. Even the water that we're using, we collect rainwater and that is the water that is using the system and the system and the water you know stays within the system so uh, that is a significant you know renewable source um so in terms of cost again your input is very little and your output of food is great and that brings the cost down so the three things that are driving our production are first of all the the food has to taste good right because it doesn't matter how cheap it is or how <laughs> accessible it is if you're not tasting the most wonderful fresh nutrient rich you know leafy greens no one's going to buy them right no one's going to eat them so that to us is 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 of primary importance right so it's high quality dense nutrition dense nutrition and it is safe to eat right we're not making anyone sick and then the second thing is cost right so we have two different models in terms of how we approach 
you know, the affordability. Given the volume, we're going to be able to provide those foods at a very, very, you know, reasonable price so that everyone can afford them. And do keep in mind that when you look at the population in Puerto Rico, 60% of the people in Puerto Rico are in some sort of, you know, government assisted program. So we, those, those are our consumers. So we're clearly very mindful of the fact that we have to be able to make these food absolutely affordable to everyone. And at the same time, we have high-end clients in the hospitality industry, for example, that are looking for that premium, you know, very exclusive, you know, high quality products that we can deliver as well. So we can certainly uh, do that um, as well. And then number three, accessibility. And that's why it's important that um, we not only have our presence on the Western side of the island, but in buildings all over the island. So that you that is easily accessible and that also keeps the cost down because of transportation and miles right that the food would have to travel if you're only producing on the west side of the island and then you know the people on the east and san juan area would not have access to that or it would be more expensive if they would it would have to do you know built into that that um the, to the cost right the the transportation so that is um th that is our vision in terms of how to make these foods absolutely affordable for everyone i don't know if you're aware but puerto rico has lots of in empty buildings that were left open after uh, many of the pharmaceutical and other american companies left the island so there's lots of abandoned buildings and actually the building that we're in right now is one of those buildings that was vacant and belonged to the government and it was you know unused for many many years when the hurricane maria hit it was actually used as a horse stall um so once you know we had to like clean it out and, and make it into the food manufacturing facility that it is now but that's just one example as to how we can grow and we can locate strategically locate these um, buildings, these vertical farms throughout the island to be able to provide everyone with access to hyper local fresh fruits and vegetables. That's great. And when you said you want uh, you want to be in every building, do you mean like you have smaller units that people can buy and put in units, or you mean you want to spread quickly and be almost in every community? Yeah, so actually it, it is both because we have oh. home aquaponic systems that we can either sell to, you know, folks who are interested in building their own small scale home aquaponic system. So that's something that we do um, offer. But what I was referring to is, you know, large scale commercial scale buildings where you can just take either an empty abandoned building and turn it into a indoor vertical aquaponics farm. And again, be able to produce large volumes of food in a very small space. So those buildings are open and available and most of them are just vacant at the moment. So okay. this would be a way to not only provide food for, for the people of Puerto Rico, but also to provide jobs. And that's something that is really important to us to not have this brain drain of everyone leaving Puerto Rico because they don't feel like they have good jobs. And they think of agriculture as farmers working in the field. And what we're presenting is a completely different solution to the future of food. And that is the new farmer actually wears a lab coat. The new farmer mm -hmm. has to be able to understand science, technology, engineering, and math to be able to run a you know indoor vertical farm. So from that perspective, that's also a a, a driving uh, force in our in our vision, and that is to invest in growing the talent uh, of you know young people in Puerto Rico, and we have a 
close association with, for example, the University of Puerto Rico in Mayaguez, and we have interns working in our facility. And it is our hope to, you know, grow our own because this area of expertise, you know, if you, you know, it doesn't exist in Puerto Rico. So we are having to grow our own future farmers um, and, and, you know, in pave the way to a whole new way of doing agriculture in Puerto Rico. That's great. Uh, it's uh, your vision is very broad. I mean, it's you have many um, things you're targeting, mm-hmm. helping um, the next generation, raising them and mentoring them, not just providing food for the community alone, but creating impact in communities. That's really, uh, really great to know. So let's talk a little bit about food safety. So we've talked about how you produce um, um, the hypo- hydroponic um, structure behind your systems. So I, I just want to find out if you've looked into other pathogens that may be growing. Okay, so you talked about bacteria that's converting the um, waste into um, nitrates, uh, if I, yes, if I got that correctly, um, yes. for the plants to use, which is really desirable. But a lot of times when you create an ecosystem like that, you have the good ones and somewhere in the background, you mm-hmm. have the bad ones. So mm-hmm. How do you manage that uh, or have you, yeah, how do you walk around that so that the produce that leave your farm is actually completely safe? Yes, absolutely. There's many aspects to that. So I'm going to speak to, first of all, the way that we're set up is a completely biosecure area. Mm-hmm. So the grove room where we, uh, where we, where the vertical racks are and where the plants are grown are by definition, a biosecure area. So all the criteria that that would need to be met to um, for that um, you know for that designation, in terms of you know controlling food traffic, having you know intervention technologies to reduce the risk of introducing the pathogens in the first place, right? And having good manufacturing practices to avoid these organisms entering the facility in the first place. So that's how we start, right? You put, you pay a lot of attention to potential sources of ingress into the biosecure area. Within the biosecure area, we also have a strict sanitation management protocol, right? So in terms of floors, walls, equipment, utensils that are used, everything that is in that room that has the, you know, the right frequency of cleaning, the right, you know, type of cleaning to ensure that if there's any pathogens that do find their way into the space, that we are able to eliminate them. And now if we move into the actual growth area itself and into the water, the water is the rainwater that is collected, is filtered, it goes through UV light, it goes into the you know fish tank and it goes through eventually, you know, a, you know, feeding through the plant uh, growth uh, troughs. So when you look at the system, what we do is capitalize on the beneficial bacteria that are naturally present. So clearly we have uh, control in terms of what, you know, we start these plants from seed. So you have a lot of control as to what sort of microorganisms you introduce into the first place, right? So the seed source and how the seeds are handled prior to starting the plants are also one way of mitigating the risk of eventually potentially incorporating a foodborne pathogen. And beyond that, the advantage of this particular system is going back to my findings from the NASA and the USDA work, we know enough microbial microbial ecology to understand that the diversity of microbial communities can actually inhibit the growth of potential invaders. So even if we have 
salmonella, listeria, or any other potential pathogens invading our system, they will not be able to proliferate. So it is impossible for us to have a completely sterile system. That is just not uh, possible. But if you think about the parameters that we're able to control compared to traditional farming you know, practices, we have the ability to control a lot more of what's in that room mm-hmm. um, and, and, and what goes out. So the way in which the, how the leaves are harvested, again, following very, very um, strict, you know, good manufacturing practices to ensure that we don't accidentally introduce any um, pathogens and then the packaging and the, the delivery. Um, so by the time it gets to the consumers, it is absolutely herbicide-free, pesticide-free, pathogen-free. Right. Um, so that, those are some of the things that we do to mitigate the risks associated with potential pathogens. And again, that's a, a big overview without going into lots of details of you know, standard operating procedures that we have in place that using the hurdle approach of every single um, opportunity that we have to mitigate risks, food safety risks are there. So that hopefully gives you a, a better sense as to how we're approaching the food safety end of it. Definitely, it definitely uh, gives a very good uh, perspective on that. And for me, I've worked with tissue culture and I know that the most Mm -hmm. important thing is keeping a sterile environment and not allowing those pathogens in, in the first place. So I I really like your response in that regard in terms of, yeah, we try to keep this uh, pathogen free and you have those um, environments that you've created. Uh, We spend a lot of our effort and time and resources in prevention rather than to have to react to a potential, you know, um, outbreak or, or presence of, of pathogens within our environment. Right. So that has always been our, you know, our approach in terms of do it, you know, right in the first place, you know, the mm-hmm. prevent and, and, and really spend your resources, not so much on testing the final product, although we are going to be doing that, but the emphasis is not in that because if you find it at that point, it's already too late, right? Mm-hmm. So we have very strict, you know, procedures in place to try to prevent it to getting to that point. So it's all about prevention. That's great. That's really great. So um, let's talk a bit about transparency. Um, a lot of companies uh, talk about being transparent uh, today because consumers want to know. Consumers are more curious than ever. So they want to know where their food is coming from, what goes into their food, why should they prefer this product to the other. So tell us a little bit about how you are promoting um, full transparency in uh, for your consumers. Absolutely. So first of all, we're going to start from the outside to the inside. We offer tours every week. We're open at Saturdays at 10.30 a.m. And we encourage people to come to our facility to go through a full tour from the outside to the inside, the whole facility. So we want people to know how we grow their food. We want people to see all the things that we have put in place to ensure this is you know, highly nutritious and safe food to eat. So when they first come into the facility, we actually have a food fence, a community fence. One of our co-founders has spent a lot of time and energy developing that because we want to show people how to even grow ed- an edible fence. So from the minute you walk into our farm, you're going to be exposed to, and, and 
and that's that's absolutely open to the public. They can eat it, you know, and access those um, spinach and parcha and cucumelons and you know tomatoes that they can actually pick from the fence. And instead of just having a, an empty fence, we want that transparency of saying we're growing food everywhere, inside and outside. So that's the first impression that most people get when they walk into our facility. Um, and then the other thing about our facility is, as part of the tour, when you walk into the main entrance, you're going to see a big window open into what is going to be the production facility. So once we have that as a fully, which is under construction right now, the second phase, um, once that is fully developed, is a fully uh, biosecure area. So we don't want people to be walking into that area, but we do want them to see the process. We want them to see how we, you know, plant the seeds, germinate the seeds, grow the, the leafy greens and the strawberries and other things that we're growing. And so there's gonna be a big window. And part of that is we want people to be able to see the process and still not compromise our you know food safety. So that is already in place and that's going to that's be great. part of what we do. And beyond that, uh, we tend to have a very you know big presence in all kinds of social media platforms because we want to share with people videos and photos of how it is that we do what we do uh, because we want full transparency. We're very, very proud and absolutely, you know, amazed at the beauty of the, the things that we're able to grow. And there's nothing like experiencing in person. And I encourage everyone to take part of the tour. And if you're ever in Puerto Rico, I am, you know, inviting you to join us because I, I, you know, so many people walk into that room, into the, you know, our current um, R&D center and the smell, the sights, the, just all your sensors, your, the sensory if, um, experience is just incredibly difficult to articulate. You just have to experience it. We've had so many tours and we record a video of people reacting when they taste our strawberries. They just go they're mind blown. They're like, this is grown indoors. And it's just so incredibly delicious when they taste our leafy greens and compared to what they're used to, they're just like, they had no idea, you know, leafy greens could taste so great without putting anything on them just as they are. So it is a wonderful experience. So we try to make it available and, you know, accessible in person, uh, but also trying to share, um, you know, what we're doing um, on all kinds of platforms via video and photos and so on. That's great. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned strawberry. It's one of my favorite fruits. And and yes. I, I had a conversation with someone recently and she was saying, of all the fruits, you should be very careful when you have a strawberry, make sure it's organic. Because, um, and she, she specifically mentioned a, um, a type of um, um, pesticide that's used um, mm -hmm. that it's really really uh, it's really really um, it's um, I won't say harmful but it's not good for women in particular yes that yes indeed very, very I know exactly what so. you're referring to yeah. and, and that is like one of the reasons why again we chose strawberries because in Puerto Rico I mean to be able to have fresh strawberries again any strawberry that you eat in Puerto Rico is coming from the United States or other parts of the world and the freshness is just not the same so um and then so in, in addition to that obviously what you just mentioned in terms of having something that is completely pesticide free that you can eat it right there um it is just you know an amazing gift so there has been plenty of interest in in from various um uh, customers for us to produce 
just strawberries for them. So we could potentially envision having one of our vertical farms just dedicated to strawberries because the need is so great that it's not something that you can find in Puerto Rico. So, um, you know, something uh, that we are considering, certainly. That's great. That's one of great. Our, our, our most uh, impactful, um, you know, products in, at the farm when people come through, they love the strawberries along with everything else, but strawberries are just delicious. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess at some point maybe seeing you ship your produce here to the United States. And <laughs> we can enjoy it as well, who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, but but as, as I said, the, 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 the need in Puerto Rico is so, so, so great that it was it's going to take us a long time before we can put some of our efforts and resources into exporting outside of Puerto Rico. The 3.5 billion, you know, deficit in terms of, um, you know, in, net import trade imbalance, you know, that is huge. So clearly we we realize that by ourselves, we're not going to be able to, you know, to make that up, which is why we want to have others, you know, build similar facilities or, or for us to build other facilities uh, throughout the island. So we're looking into various joint ventures as well um, because the need is so great and, um, and it would take a lot for us to be able to start exporting outside of the, uh, of the island. But okay. certainly, you know, in the next you know, 10 years or so, I, I could definitely see doing that. That's great. That's okay. I was just putting it out there. Um, sure. so, one of, <laughs> so one of the, um, final questions I have for you is when you envision the future of food, um, what do you see now? This is just you just thinking about food and what you envision seeing. So um, from a personal perspective, I, as you know, I am 100% plant-based, uh, whole food individual. I'm a vegan. So what I am excited about is seeing the plant-based space just take off as it has in the past few years. Um, and I am glad that you know, consumers, flexitarians and others have access and options for foods that are plant-based. However, some of those foods are highly processed. And I, and I think it's okay to have that alternative and help folks to you know, make a transition from a you know, meat-based to a plant-based uh, diet. But what I envision is access to beautiful, wonderful ingredients that can be you know, consumed as they are. Mm -hmm. So more, of, more emphasis on production of whole foods. And in turn, I see also that as a potential uh, use of ingredients for you know, processed plant-based foods, right? Mm -hmm. So the mint, the basils, the, all the other leafy greens that we're producing can easily be incorporated into either you know, um, plant-based processed foods or made available in combination or as a side to, you know, um, plant-based processed foods. So in the future of food, that, that's what I would like to see. I would like to see everyone to be able to have access um, to foods that are healthy, that are better choices for you. Um, so accessibility, again, is important. Cost is important, but absolutely taste um, and making this available to everyone. So that's what I would like to see. And I know that there's certain geographical areas that have challenges, whether economic challenges or environmental challenges or, or weather related challenges. So this becomes a very feasible solution for those folks to have access to hyper-local you know, delicious leafy greens. So that's what I see in the future of food, more vertical farms everywhere. That's great. That's really, and I, I can see that happening really because even in the US, the, the number of um, vertical farms that are emerging pretty much um, every now and then, I, and 
doing very well, doing very, very well. So I see a lot of that in the future. And there was recently as well, um, I saw, um, I saw another product that was in Europe, that was in Europe. And um, they, they're trying to bring hydroponic um, solutions into homes. So they're kind of like a lot of, um, yep. a lot of innovative um, um, products coming out in that space. So it's, yeah, it, it's really it, great. It, you're absolutely right. And homes at supermarkets or some mm. supermarkets chains that are looking at having their own, you know, growth plan growth systems within the supermarket, you know, so you, you can't get any fresher than that, right? Yeah. Um, we also envision a future where you're going to have these sort of vertical indoor farms located close to distribution centers that distribute to many restaurants. Like for example, some of the you know, major food chains in the United States that have over 2000 locations. And yet they have you know, a very small number of distribution centers around the United States. So if you can envision having a fusion farms, an indoor vertical farm located next to the distribution center, they are going to be able to have the freshest leafy greens and fruits and vegetables that they can then distribute to a few hundred restaurants around that geographical area. So I certainly see that as part of our future and the future of food, the location of these vertical farms becoming very strategic as to where you place them in urban areas or in areas of the United States that are very good distribution centers to get to um, places where you don't typically have hyper-local access to fresh fruits and vegetables. That's, that's great. And I, I, I look forward to that future as well. Thank you so much, Annabelle, for making time to connect, sure. share your knowledge, share your experiences, share about what you're doing, and also the future you envision. It's been a great conversation. And Thank you so much for the invitation. And it's, as always, lovely having oh, connecting. to talk to you anytime. <laughs> it's, oh, um, it's a pleasure. I'm always happy to talk to you, Julia. Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay, so um, to everyone that is listening here, thank you so much for connecting with us today. And until the next time, when we bring another remarkable person, remarkable individual your way, stay safe and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank Just you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.